Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everyone's doing well. It's uh, the dog days of summer. We're in, we're in July now, and uh, preparation for a lot of folks, you know, putting up tree stands or box blinds, mowing trails. I'm still consulting, of course, and uh, get to travel this week. Um, I'm headed out to New Hampshire. I'm excited for that trip. And uh, going to do some timber cutting out there with a client. And then I get home and more timber cutting, more consulting. You know, I just hope everyone's, you know, taking the time. You can work all summer. I'm continuing to work on my landscape. I'm actually planning on going over today, firm up some of the box blinds. I got to do con- some concealment, just making sure the systems are kind of flowing the way they should. And that's pretty much my strategy right now. There's a lot you can still do in the summer. I think we talked about that on a prior podcast, Perry Batten and myself. But uh, I got a returning guest, Austin Delano's back from uh, Mossy Oak, and uh, let me get him on the line. Hey, Austin, how you doing? Great, man. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I really appreciate the conversation we had, you know, last go around. And uh, I'm going to kind of let you kind of lead this off and, and talk about some things that you're experiencing, you know, in the field with, uh, you know, either, either with clients at Mossy Oak specifically you know, and I think a lot of this should be surrounding kind of the topic of drought. You know, we, we hit on this topic quite often, and I think a lot of people don't know really where to start, what they can do to either improve their soil, you know, look at landscape features, architect your landscape to hold more water. There's strategies there as well. So I kind of want you to kick it off with some of the thoughts that you have as of recent. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I really thought going into this year, looking at weather patterns and, you know, as a broader picture, the El Nino and La Nina systems that we have become familiar with in the last decade and a half or so, really having a big um, say-so basically and who gets rain and who doesn't and thought, you know, that everybody would maybe be experiencing a little bit uh, wetter of a spring and summer, especially guys in the Midwest and upper Midwest, but, uh, you know, it's another year where there's there's pockets that are getting some rainfall, and then there's there's widespread areas that are really hurting again. Um, and that's you know obviously nothing we can do about that except for uh, you know kind of drought proofing our properties as best as possible. And you know, drought proofing is kind of a uh, could lead people astray that there's actually only a handful of things that we feel like we've got control over that we can do when it comes to hardcore long-term drought instead of 
you know, little two and three week spells that are just a little bit drought stressful on crops. So big difference between long-term drought and, and stuff where plants just get their feelings hurt for a couple of weeks and then they're back to good. Yeah. In your particular area, are you experiencing any drought? I mean, are you in the categorization of a drought indice that, that identifies you as, I guess, uh, under the perspective or um, ideal rainfall currently? Yeah, we're, we're down. Um, I haven't looked this week at where we're at um, as, as, a, as a year total, but we've been down two years in a row now. And a lot of people other are too. Some people that are in the third and fourth uh, spring and summer cycle with below average rainfall. And you can see it in the ponds. You can see it in, you know, larger lakes that did not get caught up with, you know, waterfall through the, uh, through the fall and the winter, uh, when you kind of expect to catch a lot of your runoff and, uh, think kind of to saturate water table again, but we're, we're down again. We're not hurting per se as bad as some areas are. Um, we're getting a lot of those little pop-up thunderstorms right now, this time of year that are definitely helping to relieve, um, you know, a lot of row crops and people's food plots that you see. Uh, but overall, yeah, there's a lot of lot of areas that are still down, and um, you know, listening to customers in some other states and seeing them out there pulling water wagons right now, trying to keep stuff alive, it's it's evident that there's a lot of people that are already back into you know negative rainfall uh, for their for their time, and you know, people are out there scrambling, so it's it's relevant almost every year, some some years more and widespread than others. Let me, let me ask you maybe a bigger picture question. A lot of people shy away from planting summer food plots. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why. Um, it's also, it's a time thing, I think, for a lot of folks. And in my experience, it's been more of a time thing than it is a water thing. Now, I, I think when you're building your, your system or you're building your architecture around water, you know, you're focusing on areas that, can catch water, right? That's probably the, the place to start. I've previously talked about on this podcast, putting in swales and terraces, uh, utilizing you know, catchment basins or pond areas, leveraging spillways. We've talked about, you know, uh, sprinkler systems. Uh, one of the consultants that are on this, you know, he's filling up, you know, giant, you know, wagons full of water and, and dispersing across the landscape pivot systems. I mean, those are some, you know, some of them are pretty involved. Building infrastructure and landscape is a pretty involved topic. And, you know, it takes money, effort, thought, etc. Are there simpler things that we can do? And, you know, is it maybe more appropriate for some folks to just say, well, I, you know, exposing the ground, allowing the, the, the basically the, the moisture to succumb to evaporation is... Is it better just to leave things fallow? I mean, just as a strategy, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's there's a lot of different variables right there that go into exactly what you mentioned, just not knowing whether or not you need to try to manipulate, you know, some of the things on your landscape to be more drought-proof or drought-tolerant and, and having water available when other people don't. Um, and then you get caught thinking maybe it's best to, you know, just let nature take its course on some things, but... Yeah, I definitely think there's some things that we can do to make our properties, you know, whether we're consulting on them or actually doing the work ourselves and, and helping people realize there's there's obviously always going to be a limit to what we can 
we can help with until the good Lord sends rain. But, you know, the being able to, let's say, just simple tasks as far as being able to bury water tubs in areas that you know are going to need it during spring and summer. You know, if you already are working on a piece of property that has proven in the past to be gets skipped over a lot during the summer and just misses a lot of rain, but everything else is kind of there in place. You know, we, we have dug, you know, water tanks in the ground and been really successful at how the wildlife uses those without disturbing the landscape a whole lot. You know, basically going in there with a small uh, mini excavator or a small backhoe, whatever you've got your hands on. Even We've even dug a lot of them in with, with shovels, um, you know, kind of where there's a wheel, there's a way type thing to get water to some of these hard-to-reach areas. And then as you were talking, actually, you know, doing things to the land as far as terracing or building catch basins. Um, and, and I really encourage people, you know, if, you, if you're if you going to be working on a piece of property, whether it's yours or a, a, a customer's, and you know that this area is going to dry up quicker, then, then plan for it. You know, maybe leave some areas like that fallow and, you know, try to encourage a lot of native plants in there you know, that are going to be very tolerant of, of dry conditions because it never fails. You're out here looking at all the food plots that you put in and you're trying to get to grow to maximum yield capability and you, they start getting hit by a little bit of a, you know, a three, four week long droughty hot spell. And then you see some, you know, areas that you've kind of been manipulating to be more heavily into native forages and all the good weeds and forbs out there and they're just smiling you know <laughs> in all the drought and the excessive sunlight and you're like man you know there's definitely a lot to making sure obviously diversity is huge so within that diversity on a on a place having areas that we leave fallow because they just seem to really shine during these really hot droughty times of the year yeah i think people struggle with those decisions specifically, you know, lighting areas. I think that it's, it's important to think about sequencing, right? We, we go into those, at least in the Northeast where, where I'm located. I'm in, I'm in New York State, if, if folks don't know that. As, you know, these systems come in, those early April, May rains, and, you know, we're, I've gotten snow in May, so, you know, it's, it's all over the place temperature-wise. Getting these plants to survive, you know, maybe through those wetter periods, and then we have these like immense dry spells. I talked to a client not not so long ago. He had two months of no rain. He's on very clay based soils. So that water catchment and plan ahead, having plants that come out of the winter months that are hardy that survive in those spring months is really critical to that process. And I've got a couple areas on my old on my own property where they're kind of being managed as old fields, and you know those areas get a lot of utilization. Napweed. Daisy fleabane. There's just a lot of species in there that are of interest to deer, just because of you know the the relative plants, the residual plants, maybe the plants that I you know I, I threw you know in, in my food plot seed the, the year before. You know, so I think it's it's thinking about those uh, across your landscape and just diversifying a little bit. I mean, you could have you know a whole host of you know native natural browse because of you know, cut areas where you fell tree on con- fell trees on contour. You're collecting rainwater. It creates a the ability to slow water down a slope, etc. You know, there's just a lot of little things you can do on the landscape that kind of ease us into these kind of food plot examples. 
and strategies uh, a part of kind of your overall system. And I will say this, I think the discriminator like right now, and I think this is going to discriminate folks that really are putting time into their properties is if you are collecting or managing water on your landscape, period, you're going to have more utilization. I'm doing some work with a, another client right now, kind of analyzing this bit of data. And we're going to do a before and after with him specifically. And some of it just has to do with, you know, stem density. And But I think managing water, part of that is a, a really important attribute and, and something that I'm, I'm trying to focus in on a little bit more so I can talk a little more intelligently about it. So I want to I want to rip over to the idea. I brought up clay soils, for example, and it, it doesn't have to be clay soil specifically. But the idea of subsoiling, I think there's a lot of anti. Well, I hear this more and more. I'm not going to till, or I'm not going to diss the soil. But the idea of subsoiling and subsoiling, I'll use the term key line or on contour. And basically, what that does is you got a straight blade plow and you're digging into the dirt at some distance. It's giving an opportunity for water to run off you know, a slope and it's a catchment basement It, you know, water flows over and now water flows in because you've got this deep spade going into the ground. I kind of want to get some background on that. I've got a little history with doing a little subsoiling, but I think you got a little bit more than me. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about subsoiling. Yeah, I think it's something that's um, very under talked about. If, if that's a term, you know, it just does not get mentioned a whole lot. So specifically in, wildlife management practices uh doesn't get talked about a whole lot but i think and i have seen a lot of you know customers food plots where in the first 20 second view of it i can see that that may be what is needed above all else and not everybody's soils is 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 good for subsoil and let's get out in front of that and not all situations are going to be alleviated by subsoiling but if you have these really tight soils, um, whether it be clay-based or super heavy loam-based that has had lots of traffic on it in the same direction for years on end, everybody is subject to some form of soil compaction from you know machinery over the years. Uh, some places are going to be worse than others. But to be able to go in there and, and subsoil these areas, like you said, we're, we're not really incorporating residue. We're not tilling. We're not plowing. We are, we're basically breaking, you know, the underlayer of soils there that may be preventing water from filtering through the soil profile properly. And these, these areas really stand out. If you pay attention, they generally hold water when they shouldn't, and they don't hold water when they should, you know, because of, because of the way the water either sits on them too heavily in the wintertime and not being able to filter through the soil profile before because of a hard print pan, a plow pan, as it's called in a lot of places, where basically you just got a layer that could be as little as four inches deep or as much as 12 inches deep in another place, depending on the type of, of soil it is and when the last time some sort of major, you know, interruption like a subsoiler was, was put through it, if ever. And so I, I've seen it done up in the Midwest a lot in the wintertime, you know, where they're subsoiling at the same time they're putting in some of their anhydrous ammonia. A lot of different situations on where different regions use it. But the idea of being able to identify whether soil compaction is an issue that is driving problems in your field, whether it be a row crop field that really seems to dry out a lot quicker than it should, 
or food plot crop fields that you see issues holding water during the wintertime and vice versa, cracking very quickly and heavily. So if you see a crop responding to drought stress really quick or too much water stress really quick, a lot of times there's some sort of an issue there with the with the way water moves through that soil and being able to pull, whether it be a single shank subsoiler behind a dozer and you're really getting down there in that 12 to 15 inch range, or if you're pulling some sort of a little bit more shallow style subsoiler slash chisel plow, you know, in more like that three to seven, maybe even eight inch deep range. Uh, depending on your soil types, these can these can be a big difference in how that field, you know, handles water, uh, both when it has it and when it doesn't. The, the first side by side experience I saw with subsoiling and how big of a difference it could make was actually on tree planting years ago, and you know the the soil was so difficult to work even for a tree planting crew that we would go in before you know, in like August or September and subsoil these areas in that late summer, early fall period with just a single rip. And then when we, when it's tree planting time to follow those lines and the success rate of those trees in the next couple of years was, was significantly different because they were able to follow, you know, that, that, that fractured soil line and really get those roots into areas that may have taken it years to get to or, may have not been able to bust through some of that at all as a young tree. And so the success rate goes way up. So seeing that within crops and how different people's fields respond to some sort of a subsoil and activity, um, it can really be something to be looked at for guys that are kind of scratching their heads because your fertility can be great. Your pH levels can be great. Everything can kind of be jihawing. But if that field has some compaction issues somewhere down below it, it's hard for roots to do what they're designed to do when they're when they're hitting concrete, basically. Yeah, and this is interesting. I'm going to dig more into this so I can learn from you. Is I'm I'm going to go back to the the basics. We we we've talked about microbial activity in the soil, you know, breathing oxygen, exhaling carbon dioxide. You know, the basics, right? And then the other piece of it, this is this you know poor spacing and utilizing kind of this fractured. I like that term you know, fractured line and allowing a better rate of exchange of air. And that's really important because all we're talking about is compaction essentially makes these areas way too rich in CO2. And if your oxygen levels aren't good enough, the pore spacing for, you know, for the relative plants and microbial activities degraded, period. I mean, that that's the basics of some of the benefit of doing this, this rippage or, you know, we'll, we'll say straight shank tillage you know that's probably the best term so i want to talk a little bit not on contour so flat ground and a lot of people have flat ground their food plots limited slope etc when you're driving a tractor through we'll say a perennial food plot or maybe an annual food plot what's the strategy like when would you actually do this subsoiling what would be a strategy there and also thinking the relative distance you know, that you may subsoil one section versus the other, and maybe maybe variant. You know, you may have a perennial crop where you, you don't want to subsoil because of the, the root matter that's already present, where an annual you may decide to, or let's just talk a fallow field. So I want to I want you to kind of give me a story uh, about this and, and think more precisely how you would attack subsoiling. 
Yeah, it's definitely one of those activities where sometimes you may just be, you know, a slave to whenever somebody has got the equipment can do it for you. But if you can do it yourself, whether you're pulling it with a, you know, a, usually takes at least a 50 horse tractor or, or larger and preferably four wheel drive at that to pull a single shank subsoil or so you, you start to think about adding you know at least 15 to maybe as much as 20 horsepower for, for every shank that you add past one um, if we're pulling it with a you know a modern day full drive tractor so it does take a little bit of horsepower and some equipment to really pull one the correct way also want to identify you know beforehand before you just drop a shank off in the ground how deep is this you know hard pan or plow pan that we may be dealing with and is it more naturally created is it just an area that's really tough to get through or is it because of all the machinery and all the years so something to think about before we drop one in the ground is where where is that at and that can usually be found pretty quickly with a soil probe uh it doesn't take very long to find you know where the, the problem lays at if, if soil compaction is it and you know, I think most people would probably find that late summer, early fall time period before you really get cranked up with fall food plots or maybe right during it could be a great time to go ahead and pull a subsolar. Probably one of the neatest places I've ever seen it really increase the way a plot was growing and it was really an incidental type deal was the wrong field getting subsoiled one time for a tree planting. It was in a perennial clover field. It was kind of that later stage of summer, suffering from a little bit of drought stress. And obviously it's been, you know, 90 to 95 degrees almost every day. And so your perennial clovers, they take a beating that time of year. You know, they're getting hammered on by the deer. The regrowth is not as near as intense as it would be in, a, in the cooler part of the year, in the spring or the later part of the fall. And that field got subsoiled in, in one direction and thinking that it was going to be planted in trees, but it didn't get planted. And so that following fall, as the, you know, it was done in the summertime and it went on into the fall there, and the clover starts responding to the little bit of increase in rainfall and the cooler temperatures. It was pretty amazing just to see how dense and green the areas of the field that were closest to these big subsoil rows started getting even though it would seem that that was a lot of, you know, stress to a root system on a perennial clover field, that this single shank, you know, subsoil had been pulled through there a foot plus deep. But all it did was just almost, you know, gave that clover a steroid shot for that field. Um, because all of a sudden all those, you know, uh, two or three years worth of roots are just really spreading and really getting deep and soaking up nutrients that, may have been a little bit tougher to get to beforehand so it kind of woke the field up so to speak um, from something that maybe wouldn't have indicated that that was a major problem but it was a field that had been driven over you know for 15 plus years in wildlife activities and just farm activities and even though it was producing it was amazing how much more productive it was after it had been subsoiled even though it wasn't even a target field for that so I look at fields like that, and although it's just three or four acres on a, you know, 40-acre property, that was a big deal from then on for that landowner to not only keep doing that in areas where we were going to be planting trees for tree success, but it was like, hey, you know, if we rip this in two directions, you know, 
90 degrees from each other on some of these fields that are holding too much water in the winter. Let's see if that doesn't alleviate some problems. And, and kind of what you were talking about, you don't have to do your whole place in the first year. Maybe you do a couple of fields that you've identified as that potentially being a problem and seeing how it responds to it, you know, over the next year's time and see if that's not something you need to continue to do. Or maybe you're like, no, didn't see any benefit in it whatsoever, not for my place. Do you see instances where, and the two, this brought two things to my mind, qu- questions for you. The first question is, you know, somebody goes in with, you know, general vertical tillage, they're disking a field and they get down two, three, six inches thereabouts, right? And it has a tendency to kind of break up the soil and turn into small particles, essentially. And then at that layer, over time, for me, the running over it, weather, uh, depending on how you're utilizing plants, et cetera, a layer builds up three, four, six inches, right? So essentially just, just tillage alone can create this hard pan. And so the introduction of the subsoiling at, let's say, a depth below that two, three, six inches, you know, is there a strategy there where, you know, if you can create a profile or opportunity to subsoil at a deeper level, should it be at the hard pan or slightly below the hard pan? Obviously you're limited in some cases to the equipment that you have available to you. That's clear. But I'm just wondering what would be a strategy? Would you want to go slightly through and below the hard pan or, you know, at the hard pan per se? What, what would you, you know, what would you uh, uh, prescribe to somebody? Yeah, I think that's a great point because as we talked about a second ago, it may not be an issue on every single field you've got. <clears throat> and, a, and a simple soil probe, whether it's one you buy from someplace like Forestry Suppliers Online or make your own out of a piece of rebar, as we've done many times, um, you can go around and usually find you know, where that problem is and find that really tough plow layer, whether it's self-induced from yourself or maybe you bought a farm and they were – you know, plowing and tilling for years and, and they've created one itself. Like you said, it could be one at three and four inches where those clay particles in soils that have clay in them have migrated down. And so your looser soils are on top. These tighter soils begin to form on the bottom. And then that's where that plow pan or that hard pan really starts to form. So I think if a guy's going to think about subsoiling, he needs to do the best he can to kind of maybe get a shovel and a, um, you know, a, a piece of rebar and a, a subsoil probe and check to see what you've got going on. That way, obviously, if we're going to, if we're going to subsoil this, we've got to at least get down past that layer. I don't know that a guy's going to gain a whole lot by being six inches past a plow pan, except for the fact that he is just fracturing the soil a little bit deeper. One, one study I did read years ago that was really fascinating to me on plow pans and using crops to kind of mine these nutrients back to the level, the root zone that most crops are going to grow into is, is subsoiling something in that late summer, early fall time period. And then using crops that we all know that wildlife love, but that also have a great ability to gather and mine nutrients a little deeper than most crops and bring them to that two to five inch deep range where a lot of soil activity goes on as far as root zones. And those plants break down in that area and doing that for a couple of years to really increase all sorts of microbial activity and mine nutrients that 
maybe a lot of crops that we would be growing are not going to get to, and also nutrients that have leached down past the part, past the point of most crops being able to reach to it. Obviously, a lot of things like daikon radishes have a great ability with that tuber that they grow, and then you couple those with an area that's been subsoiled, and these roots and those radish tubers can really go down there and put that tap root down even past that tuber and mine those nutrients and bring them back up to an area where it's usable by the next crop and also transferable to our wildlife that's going to be taking in these crops. So that's another way of looking at, you know, using a crop directly after a subsoiling to help not only break up that soil profile even more, but, but bring nutrients up into the root zone that are more readily available for shallower rooted crops. Yeah, this is all good points. So uh, another thing is, I want to talk about something I saw 20 years ago. You know, I grew up and uh, had a chance to do a little farming with uh, some of my relatives. And, you know, using subsoilers or cultivation in the same technique, you know, for, oh, I'm thinking the cultivation, I think they had four shanks and they would run granulated in each one of the the channels, uh, granulated fertilizer. I've seen that plenty of times you know the other point is the spacing and relative spacing which you were talking about relative depth relative spacing i think is commensurate with the type of crops that you're growing so you know if you want the crops to spread their lateral roots right um, that may dictate the distance that you create your channels Um, it also may be predicated based on the type of equipment that you have but if you're in my case like a single you know, subsoil or single bottom plow, some somewhere along those lines, um, you'll be able to kind of predict, you know, and create this this ideal channeling. And um, I have a perennial side and an annual side. A lot of times in my layout, you know, it's a strip food plots. That's what that's what I call it. And I, I would run strip, you know, in in each one of those, you know, in three four foot sections thereabouts. And that that would be kind of my strategy to aerate. The point you brought up a second ago, Austin, is u- utilizing crops specifically, and I kind of want to go there. We talked a little bit in the beginning. I kind of mentioned a little bit about cover crops and some of the other you know plants that you just brought up as uh, you know tillage radish or radishes. So I want to kind of get in the crop side of this and crops preserving moisture and what crops to help maybe alleviate compaction or ones that do well in drought. So kind of want to run through some of that at least right now this time of year we're a little late for obviously summer planting but folks may be in the process of putting in their second crop per se or where they had a failed crop and they're they're thinking about this next month or month or two before they get into their fall crop yeah there's you know you're kind of right there on the line right now where people in the very northern part of of the planting zones you know in, in your neck of the woods in the bottom edge of canada you know we're already starting to think about you know, putting brassicas and stuff like that in the ground coming up in a couple of weeks to get all that tonnage, you know, for the for the fall and the winter. And, of course, you get down here into the deep south, and, you know, we've still got guys putting soybeans in behind wheat that just got cut. So there's, a you know, a big difference in, in planting zones for a lot of guys and when they might be doing some of these activities. But, you know, I've got a, a place not too far from behind my house this year where – we're doing a lot of heavy cover crop cover cropping 
fallow fields getting converted into some more traditional food plot type crops because there is so much fallow field in the area that we're trying to increase, you know, overall protein in some of those areas uh, coupled with all the fallow ground. And one plant that really sticks out to me that is, I think, highly underutilized uh, and it really shines this time of year. You know, we've had 100, 102 degree days the last two days in a row on the actual temperature and heat indexes have been crazy. We have gotten some occasional rains, which has alleviated a little bit of stress on the plants. But the one plant that I see every day when I get up and go outside, I've got it behind my shop. It's accidentally growing there, for the lack of a better term, because it was probably in a spilled bag and got a leaf blowed out into the, um, you know, the, the areas there around the shop, which is basically just chert gravel, and that's chicory. Um, you know, it's an extremely resilient uh, plant to drought stress, and I actually took a backhoe a few years ago and dug down beside a, a single plant within a field that had been there for five plus years was how long the perennial blend had kind of been in the field. And at the time I was doing some studying on chicory and just, you know, its ability to get through some really, really tough soils and always have some green forage on it, almost regardless of the situation and the the temperatures and drought. And to see the taproot that chicory is able to push through some of the toughest soils you've ever seen. And this time of year when it's kind of, in in our eyes, kind of an ugly and a bolting plant, you know, it's flowering. If it's not getting browsed too hard this time of year, it's got this lavender colored flower on it that's real pretty. But then the plant itself is just kind of this gangly bolting plant with some spiky and some smooth leaves depending on the variety down below it. But then the deer just hammering these, these um, you know, these fresh uh, buds of the flowers that are coming off on it and the, the, the stems of the plants that seem to be, you know, full of just moisture and nutrients this time of year. And, of course, the white tails are extremely attracted to that. But that's something guys can be thinking about right now because depending on where you live at, you know, chicory is a perennial. It needs some time to get started and get that root system established so that it can be a very long-term drought-resilient plant. So depending on where you live at, chicory is definitely something that can be added into, you know, whether it be a a perennial food plot in red and white clovers and uh, being a portion of that as a standalone crop or even adding it to fields that you plan on letting it go fallow because I know some people hear the word chicory and like, I've seen that growing in every ditch and, you know, the deer don't ever touch it kind of boils down to the variety type. So the the variety types that we know wildlife really like, if they get introduced into even fallow field situations, just to kind of be another, you know, quote unquote weed out there that's out providing some really serious nutrition, a really great plant to think about uh, using for areas that are drought stressed year in and year out, because I know we're going to get drought stressed every year. So I always want to suggest to a customer, hey, think about in some of your perennial food plots, either adding more chicory to a blend that's already got it or using it as a standalone crop, even in a few areas, to be a place that the deer can always go to. It may not always be the prettiest crop, but once it's established, it's really a tough plot to get rid of or to kill from the standpoint of the weather being able to, you know, completely zap it. It really stands out as being a, Super, super drought-tolerant plant. 
I think that's a great point and something that we've hit on on this podcast a little bit is thinking about you know those type of variations in strategy where you're or you're selecting a plant to the environment i call that particular plant a dynamic accumulator or a mineral accumulator uh, because of the taproot lamb's quarter falls in the same kind of uh, characterization where they have this this you know deep taproot that uh you know, digs down and it's able to maneuver through the soil in a good way. I'm going to throw something out there recently and something that I saw on a client's property not too long ago. I had a penetrometer with me, and uh, I think you brought up earlier, you could use use rebar or, you know, I guess a screwdriver. And I stuck it in the ground, and uh, we sunk the penetrometer. And uh, it's an area that had some compaction, some you know, misuse over the years where there's likely a hard pan and that native warm season grass, the switchgrass that was planted in that area really kind of created this, you know, great biome of, you know, breaking up that compaction layer. Just, just as an example, some of those grasses that we put in place, you may end up terminating those and and they're, they're great opportunities to put in other plants that may be more desirable. I look at you know, switchgrass is kind of an eliminator, and, and uh, I use it for eliminating movement. And uh, as much as people, you know, prescribe it as a bedding resource, to me, it's an area to create dead zones. That's you know, but the soil benefits are huge. And to that same point is, you know, these deep rooted plants and selecting plants with a deep root, I think, is a big piece of the puzzle when we're coming to you know figuring out what you know what plants we want to put on the landscape. All right. So Austin, I want to kind of end with the the last piece of this is, you know, we're getting into, you know, like you were talking about earlier, planting season. You know, some folks in my area, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, you know, northern parts of Ohio, Michigan, you know, those areas they're thinking along the lines of putting in their their food plots, at least their fall food plots pretty soon. And uh, we're dealing with a drought right now. Obviously, we're thinking more about timing. So timing plantings with rain. When you get into this topic of what to plant right now for the fall, and I want to end on this, you know, what's, what's a good one, two, three punch seed combo that you like right now for those in the north? And I'm sorry to exclude the folks in the south, but it just, uh, it's on my mind and I'm a northerner. Yeah, no, I think it's it's probably one of the things that I, I talk about and probably end up trying to. Um, you know, take customers to school on almost as much as more than anything. And it's just plant timing. And I actually wrote an article on this a couple of years ago, trying to be as specific as possible about how critical um, plant timing is. And, but also realizing that a lot of people just see these tiny windows that they've got to plant a crop in. And they think there's that nothing can fall outside of that. And so just take, just for a quick example, warm season legumes like soybeans. You know, a lot of people think if they don't get their soybeans in, in May or the first week of June, there's just absolutely no reason to plant them. Totally dependent on why you're planting them. If you want to plant something for your whitetails that we know a frost is probably going to kill them pretty quickly, but you need something extremely attractive for super early bow season, yeah, go in there and drill some peas and some beans four to five weeks before right in an area. Uh, you know, it's going to work. They're going to be in there. They're going to use it. But keep in mind that, the you know, the upcoming winter is going to kill that. So 
easy place to use warm season legumes is in areas of you know high activity just before bow hunting season but you could also turn around and have strips or utilize that entire area that we're talking about planting late season warm season legumes and knowing that hey in just a month in just six weeks whatever it might be we're also going to need to be planting our cool season crops to get the most out of them and so when we're looking at timing for the upper part the upper planting zone up there and especially the brassicas i'm going to want to get 60 solid days of growth out of those before cold weather starts affecting the growth pattern and so if I'm looking at anything in the rape and the turnip and even the the radish families, I'm looking at that 60-day window. Sometimes I might want a little bit more if I'm trying to grow a lot of tubers for soil compaction type areas. I might plant even sooner than that to try to get as much bulk tuber growth as possible. If I'm trying to really concentrate on palatability for a month, six weeks going into the food plot season, you know, bows archery hunting then i'm probably not going to plant quite as early because i want those plants a little bit more young a little bit more palatable if i'm planting mostly brassica style crops for tonnage and i need to create as much food in a two or three acre field as possible for late season hunting then i'm going to try to get at least that 60 day growing mark in uh if not a little bit more to grow as much tonnage so it's it's relative to the situation but the the radishes are really hard to beat we know they're not as cold tolerant though as some of the rapes and some of the turnip varieties and that's something we've worked on a lot this year at biologic we've got a new radish called endurance that we've been working on for six to seven years as far as my trialing on it we just now have enough seed to be able to have some out there available for customers but it's a little bit more cold tolerant and drought and stress tolerant variety of a radish, but it is not your typical daikon variety. This has some, you know, backgrounds going back into Southern Africa, and that's where a lot of our drought resilience is coming from. So we're really pumped about putting it out this year and seeing how it responds uh, to super cold weather and the increases of the certain characteristics that we see over say the daikon varieties so a lot of that is going on right now and in that in y'all's neck of the woods you know a lot of our customers i tell them to shoot for that um, mid to late july time period to look at putting their brassica crops in but if you're you know if you're primarily using cereal grains on a place you've got a little bit longer window to start thinking about putting those in because if we're if we're looking at palatability we don't want our oats or our rye grain or our wheat or triticale, any of that. We don't want that 18 inches tall when, when the season rolls around. It's kind of kind of look pretty, and there's a lot of tonnage out there, but from a palatability and attraction standpoint, we want that window to be a little bit closed down where, yeah, we've got a gap to plant here so that our plants are going to be the most palatable, and that's when it really pays dividends to watch the row crop farmers in your area and historical temperatures and what when it needs to be put in for you and for the situation you're trying to attack yeah that's a good that endurance uh, radish that you're talking about i had listened to a podcast that you had all done uh, on that specifically listening to the 
you know, history of that specifically. So maybe something for those folks that are interested in trying to, you know, take a look at that particular plant and opportunity to get it on your landscape and do some evaluation. I think a lot of people in the North are used to the, the daikon, et cetera. And, and obviously um, I, I, you've got me interested. I know you weren't selling it, but uh, it's definitely got me. Interested. No, we've, yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of really cool things. And you know, it's, it's one of those deals where people ask me as the R and D guy for biologic, what do y'all got new this year? Like, well, a lot of years I don't have anything really new to show right. you because I can't reinvent the wheel. You know, we, we've got so much really cool, cool stuff to use that we're, yeah, I'm always looking for another variety like that our guys in New Zealand have been working on for years, whether it be a perennial clover or a brassica. You know, we have a turnip variety that we've been using for 10 to 12 plus years now that it's just one of the most cold toler- tolerant turnip varieties there are. And it may not be the most attractive thing right out of the ground in the fall. We know that. But that's, we're, we're using its strengths because we know when, December 15th rolls around, December 20th rolls around. If we've had this stuff in the ground and it's been growing, the whitetails are going to find it. It's cold hardy. The bulb's not going to get mushy on you. And even if the tops get, you know, quote unquote, froze out in the middle of January, they'll still be in there digging up those solid tubers where something like a daikon might get soft on you, but its strengths are being attractive really early in the season. So it's, you know, looking at the type of plants that you're going to use and applying them specific to a food plot crop. You know, I get this really vague, wide-based question all the time. Man, what's the best thing I can plant for my whitetails? And as, and as any of your listeners are going to know, man, that's a loaded question. You know, I, I've, I've got 50 answers for you, but it all depends on your situation and what you're trying to do. So, you know, we're, there's not ever a magic bullet, a magic bean, as we always like to say for everybody, but we almost always have something out there we can use specific to your situation and what you're trying to accomplish on the piece of property. So, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Don't ever be afraid to trial something, you know, and say, man, this might work for, you know, whether it be subsoil or a new plant activity, but never be afraid to try something new in a spot and see if it might not be exactly what you need. Yeah, that's good. And I like that alternative idea and thinking about, you know, not everything new comes out every year. Uh, it takes time to develop, you know, these particular strains of plants. And, you know, that was a good podcast to listen to. Um, and I, I kind of enjoyed hearing the, the lineage of that particular plant. So, You've got me interested. Hopefully folks pay attention to that. That is on the website, you know, Biologics website. You can take a look and uh, order yourself some of that particular plant. All right, Austin, I think that's it for today. It was great catching up with you. Good listening to some of this strategy. I think we got into some good good details, examples, and things for people to kind of reacquaint themselves with if, if you're familiar with some of the things we talked about. So I appreciate the time that you put, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, man. Y'all have a good summer. All right. You too. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.